This week on Policy, Guns and Money. Dr. Marcus Hellier speaks to Dr. Andrew Davies about the development of hypersonic weapons. What it might do is reconstitute the long-range strike capability that Australia has not had for a decade. Dr. Tegan Westendorf speaks to Professor Lisa Short about radical technology innovation. Many people don't understand how the technologies work. What they do need to understand is that it's the building block of trust. And Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Hayley Channer about Biden's foreign policy and the Indo-Pacific. So in that sense, there's been a, a lot of really unhelpful trends that have happened in the US, and that has had a major impact on where we are today. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. The development of hypersonic weapons raises questions for military strategies and strategic stability. Dr. Marcus Hellier speaks to senior Aspie fellow, Dr. Andrew Davies, about his recent report, Coming Ready or Not, Hypersonic Weapons. They detail what a hypersonic weapon is, whether there are ways to defend against this type of weapon, and who is developing this capability. Hello everyone, today I'm here with Andrew Davies, the former director of ASPE's Defence and Strategy Program and now a senior fellow at ASPE who has just released a new strategic insight report called Coming Ready or Not, Hypersonic Weapons. Hello Andrew. Hello Marcus, nice to be back. It's always very nice to see you and to have you still uh, engaged with ASPE. So here's some pretty straightforward questions to start with. What exactly are hypersonic weapons? Well, it might sound straightforward, but it's actually not entirely straightforward. Um, you know, hi- hypersonic doesn't have a hard boundary line. Um, you know, rule of thumb is that things that are going really, really fast. But there's already weapons out there that are uh, Mark III weapons or three times the speed of sound. They're not hypersonic weapons or not, not for the purpose of this discussion anyway. So we're really talking about things that go at five times the speed of sound or more, mm-hmm. um, right up to and including things uh, like re-entry vehicles coming back into the Earth's atmosphere from space at 20 to 25 times the speed of sound. So your good old-fashioned intercontinental ballistic missile that's been around for 50 years, that's technically a hypersonic weapon, but we're talking about something different here, aren't we? So there's two sort of kinds of families of hypersonic weapons that people are very interested in at the moment. Yeah, there's kind of old school, if you like, and and the uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles are an example of that. But but in the report, I make the point that hypersonic weapons are nothing new. And there's there's a lot of sort of breathless reporting out there um, in the popular press and sometimes even in the sort of defence press. Um, that suggests that this is a brand new uh, paradigm shift. And I I don't think that's quite right. But but I do think that the new classes of hypersonic weapons do exacerbate a a few old problems and provide some new opportunities. And what I mean by the new class is things that travel at speeds, you know, 10 to 20 times the speed of sound, but can manoeuvre as well. Uh, A ballistic missile is exactly what the name says. It's ballistic. It's on a predictable trajectory. If you track it for a little while during its trajectory, you know where it's going, you know where it's going to come down, and it's reasonably predictable. Even if its speed makes it, in practice, very, very difficult to intercept. Now, you take that same equation but add manoeuvrability to it, and it becomes a much more difficult problem. It means that basically, whereas a ballistic missile, if you know who your adversary is, you know where it's going to come from. 
with a hypersonic weapon, uh, manoeuvring hypersonic weapon, it can come in from any direction. So it seems to me the big change is that now uh, hypersonic weapons have, I guess, tactical applicability. They're not just being used for uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, so very high-value weapons with high-value targets, but they have much more applicability. So you you could be launching a hypersonic missile off a, a ship or an aircraft to target, say, a ship. Uh, yes, potentially, although when you use the word tactical, uh, I, I don't think it's quite the sort of battlefield tactical type mm. weapons, you know, with ranges of, you know, five, ten kilometres, those sorts of things. Because hypersonic flight's actually not possible at, at low altitude. Um, near sea level, you can't push something through the air that fast before it melts. So hypersonic flight really happens at, at altitudes of you know 30 to 100 kilometres. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about things that are going to be launched over distances of at least hundreds of kilometres, if not thousands. So we're, we're really in the sort of category of intermediate range, to use the old sort of Cold War parlance. But when we look at sort of the growth of, in range of all kinds of missiles, so cruise missiles and things like that, they're already up in that kind of range already. So the big difference seems to be kind of the speed of these weapons, which makes them extremely hard to defend against. Is there a defence against a hypersonic weapon at the moment or potentially in the near future? Well, well, potentially uh, th there is, but in practice it's going to be um, very difficult. Two things that are being thought about at the moment is one is what's called hypervelocity projectiles. Imagine a gun with a very, very high muzzle velocity. So, uh, so typical deck guns on warships at the moment have muzzle velocities of two or three times the speed of sound, but hypervelocity projectiles can be launched at uh, six to eight times the speed of sound. So Basically, hitting a hypersonic bullet with a hypersonic mm. bullet is... is Sounds is, very difficult. Uh, that's a hard kill defence. Are there soft kill defences? Can you jam it or blind it? or uh, seduce it away with some kind of decoy? Well, potentially, any sort of seeker warhead is, is amenable to uh, being decoyed or, or jammed. And also, hypersonic weapons are no different from any other weapons in as much as they need targeting data when you launch them. So if you can get inside that... So if you can that, break that, the kill chain... Break the kill chain anywhere mm -hmm. is probably better. Uh, yeah, and the further upstream you are... Uh, the better. If you're trying to hit a hypersonic missile with a hypersonic bullet, mm -hmm. um, you, you're probably in a world of hurt. So theoretically, a better option is to, to shoot the launch platform before it launches, potentially using your own hypersonic weapon, which leads us to the question of who has them already that could use them against us? And when's a sort of viable time frame to expect Australia to be getting hypersonic weapons into service. In terms of who has them now, the Russians claim to have them. Um, now, that's a, a contentious claim, um, and it, it's not at all clear that they have things other than research and development systems, um, as do the Chinese, um, as do the Americans. I think more realistically, we're looking at the second half of this decade before there are operational level, sort of reliably um, useful hypersonic weapons. But that's only five years away. So Australia has entered into a cooperative development program with the US. And if you look at the government's investment plan and its defence strategic update, there's a lot of money there to acquire uh, hypersonic weapons. But your view is we're probably at least five years away from seeing something in service? Well, realistically, we're not going to be shopping for systems from Russia or China.
mm-hmm. um, who, who seem perhaps to be a, a little bit further advanced than the United States. Um, that said, the Pentagon's got a multi-billion dollar research and development program at the moment, uh, but there's no money in the US four-year program for acquisition of hypersonic weapons. That, that would come beyond that. So, yes, I, d- I think it's a while before the ADF will have one in its inventory. And, and what, would, what do you think the ADF would use them for? Would it be for doing things like sinking ships or are we thinking of launching volleys of missiles at, at an adversary's homeland thousands of kilometres away? Either or, I think, um, but p- potentially, uh, d- depending on what, what the systems fielded are. I mean, we're, we're not developing our own hypersonic weapons, but as you say, we're in a collaborative approach with the United States, um, as we have been with previous weapon systems like heavyweight torpedoes and, and standoff conventional missiles. So we could do either of those things, but I think what it might do is reconstitute the long-range strike capability that Australia has not had for a decade since the F-111 retired. We replaced the F-111 with Super Hornets, which have about a third of the combat radius. Um, So I think it will give us that reach for strike that we haven't had for quite some time. Yeah, I have to say the ADF strike cupboard is looking pretty bare at the moment, and this could be one way to sort of restock that cabinet. Yes, that's right. U- using very expensive submarines to launch um, strike is possible, but it's a pretty fraught activity and you know, submarine can only carry so many missiles, mm. whereas if you can launch from your own territory, you have much more uh, flexibility and much more capacity. So theoretically, you could launch a hypersonic weapon from Australia and reach somewhere like the, the South China Sea? Uh, potentially, yeah. Yeah, there, there are certainly uh, weapons in development in that sort of class. Mm. Now, one of the um, concerns people have with hypersonic weapons that you mentioned in your report is that they're coming very fast. You don't actually know what kind of warhead is on it. It could be a nuclear warhead. And so there's concerns that if a country detects a launch, it may respond with nuclear weapons because it may have to do that to uh, ensure it's, it gets off a, a response in time. Is that a legitimate concern? And if so, how do you manage that concern that all of a sudden, as soon as somebody launches a weapon, everybody's going to be responding with nuclear weapons because they just don't know what's coming at them? Look, I think that's a real concern. Um, it's not a new concern, but it exacerbates the old ones. I mean, dur- during the Cold War, the... Uh, Soviet Union and the United States had huge nuclear arsenals on a tripwire, um, you know, the, the so-called doomsday machine, that if a nuclear weapon goes off somewhere in the United States you know, or, or in the Soviet Union, it's on for young and old. Well, hy- hypersonic weapons, particularly ones that can be launched from orbit and hit anywhere on the Earth's surface within 15 to 20 minutes, I think it exacerbates those concerns, um, as do the intermediate range missiles. And the intermediate range, by which we mean ranges of you know, a few thousand kilometres, were banned by treaty in the final days mm-hmm. of the Cold War for good reasons, and that is that the reduced warning time makes it much more dangerous. And I think these hypersonic weapons potentially make that problem worse. And I know one of your uh, favourite topics is the survivability of surface warships nowadays. Presumably this does not help the chances of surface warships. Well, look, I'm on the public record of saying that surface warships became obsolete in 1945, but nobody's noticed yet because we haven't had a sufficiently hot war. 
um, I, I think this is yet another more significant threat to surface warship. I would not be putting a surface warship in harm's way against a, a peer adversary. Well, that's, that's not very encouraging considering uh, the government's huge investment in, in shipbuilding, including $45 billion in the future frigate, which will be arriving around about the same time as you're saying these weapons will be entering service. So that certainly uh, gives pause for thought. So, Well, don't make me mention the Maginot line. <laughs> <laughs> right. On that, that historical reference, it's time to wrap it up. So thank you very much. Andrew, and I would recommend to all of our listeners out there to go to the ASPE website and download a copy of Andrew's report. It's only 12 pages long and written in Andrew's uh, wonderful, accessible style. Thanks, Marcus. COVID-19 has changed the way we work and highlighted the importance of technology and innovation. Dr. Tegan Westendorf speaks to Professor Lisa Short, founder of PNL Digital Edge and group chair of the Global Foundation for Cyber Studies and Research. They discuss how Australia can enable big tech innovation, the challenges of funding innovation, and why it's important decision makers have an understanding of the potential of innovation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Lisa Short. It is a pleasure to chat to you about how Australia needs to modernise in order to enable big tech innovation or risk getting left behind as the rest of the world advances. So. I'd like to start with what do you think are the challenges to tech innovation capability in Australia, such as, for example, the potential use of blockchain for ID authentication in future? Yeah, my pleasure in joining you, Tegan. Uh, anybody that knows me know that knows that certainly I, I certainly love two things. I love innovation. I love Australia, but I love also um, bringing Australia to the innovation table uh, internationally. And one of the challenges we do have is that Australia is viewed as a follower, not a leader. And that has been inherent problems in the sense that that it's entrenched in the way that we support innovation. So uh, we certainly have a problem with gender, a gender balance uh, in Australia, and that massively impacts um, our ability to have inclusion and diversion, diversity in the way that we think and the way that we develop technologies. But we also have significant challenges around the way that we fund uh, innovation. Many innovators here have great ideas but can't get capital and can't get VC funding and, and can't get capital funding. So that the way that that is funded is, is a challenge, particularly from a government perspective and, and a, at a government level. We have a fear of, of failure and we actually uh, tend to tear people down for failure rather than lift them up and support them. And I think the other one that's the, the third probably key area is the fact that our structures, our, uh, such as the ATO, uh, the Australian Taxation Office, um, ASIC, and the inherent regulatory authorities and structures that support innovation and the corporate structures and the business structures that sit around innovation have not moved forward with the pace of technology and innovation. And mm -hmm. I probably guess the last point on that is the point that you raised about blockchain. One of the areas that I've been working at internationally is that we do need an international and national strategy around the use of blockchain and frontier technologies. It's really scary to know that less than 3% of our elected decision makers and those who are in board or leadership positions have knowledge of STEM and less than 1% of those have even any knowledge whatsoever of blockchain. And yet blockchain is a foundational technology of Society5. So unless we have leaders and decision makers who understand the potentials of what these technologies 
can do, they can't make the right decisions and they certainly can't support innovation. And we'll, con we'll continue to have this stifled uh, innovation ecosystem within the Australian environment. Mm. It sounds like a strategy to that effect would have to really address then the traditional organisational structures of business and government agencies in Australia in order to, you know, try to bridge that gap that you're talking about between tech experts at the real cutting edge of innovation and decision makers at the higher levels of policy and business. And I wonder, do you think... I mean, COVID presents us with a lot of opportunities. Is this a particularly good moment in which to challenge those traditional ideas of organisational structure? Oh, look, it, it is. It's, it's a massive opportunity for us and, and for innovators because I've been remote working remotely for, you know, for 10 years. Most entrepreneurs in tech have been doing the same. So you might have, for example, a CTO who's in Germany. You might have your CEO in London. You might have the person who manages your teams in New York. You might have a tech team who's decentralised in Singapore, Vietnam, Lisbon, Spain, Russia, China, all working together but we don't have even the paperwork trail or the process trail that facilitates any form of support around that. So mm -hmm. you know, we're still looking at corporate structures. When you get a form, it says, what sort of structure are you? You're a company, you're a, you're a partnership. What about a decentralised autonomous organisation who has a very horizontal uh, leadership team and a very horizontal way of engaging? It's relationship-driven. We haven't moved our structures and our processes and systems forward. We have with COVID-19 in many ways. Bear in mind the challenges were already there. We've, we've, we've opened the, these gaps to chasms and identified the way that contemporary work practices actually are. Do we have an opportunity to retain that? Absolutely we do. But we've still got to sit down and have some really good open discussions about what businesses actually look like now, how people are engaged in employment, what innovation actually looks like and who's involved in that innovation. You know, it's not a, not a matter of, of going out and going to the big four in consulting companies and sitting around a table and going, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Mm -hmm. This is about ecosystems of innovation working together so that we get the best and the most robust and resilient technologies to support what our goals are in life moving forward. Mm. I've heard you speak about the idea of transparent discourse and, you know, the education of the broader population in addition to the business sector and government agencies as being really crucial to taking up and pursuing innovative um, tech solutions. I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit more about what that would entail and how that could enable e-vaccine uh, passports and immunity passports. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion, Tegan, in the sense that, you know, I've come from a career of even from a very early age at school of being engaged in debating. Mm. And debating was where you had two teams and you had two opposing, you know, negative and a positive view and you got together and you had a three-minute discourse each on each side and you came to a robust decision. We've lost that art to be able to have honest, transparent discussion that is not viewed negatively. So raising challenges and considerations that we have to take into account when we develop technology solutions that impact people requires open, voracious, honest discussion. Probably uh, in terms of, uh, of vaccine passports, it's so important because 
we are proposing that we are taking health information and registers of health information that were designed for one reason, for public health and for individuals' well-being. And we are now saying that we want to use those records and that information in another way to restrict people's movements using the concept of vaccine passport. Now, I in, any, I in no way say that the technology is not amazing. This is a huge opportunity for us to advance both sectors of mobility and health. But for us to produce the most robust product that respects both the privacy and the equality and all the elements of that stakeholder, we need to have open discussion. And we are afraid of having open discussion because it's viewed negatively. Open discussion is positive. It gives us the ability to move towards a positive, really good solution around technologies. If we don't, we will produce a technology that has completely emitted a potential challenge, and that's a high risk. And around vaccine passports, that's critical. For example, we cannot be having that discussion without the understanding of identity. We need to have an understanding. If we're talking about identity, we need to be having an understanding of blockchain technologies. We also need to be having an understanding of how decentralised technologies can empower privacy and those sorts of conversations. We need to be having discussions about data, um, and that includes a big discussion and an honest discussion about what our limitations are, what our potentials are, and what are the things that we need to overcome. So I guess that, you know, the clear message is, and, and, and innovators and entrepreneurs, we aren't challenged with, we can't do. What we think about is, hmm, how do we do that? That's a very different conversation. That requires open and honest discussion to get from a whiteboard to a solution. Absolutely. So do you think this calls for an element of bringing together traditional thinking and innovative thinking in Australia? Yes, I think it's it's a global problem. I don't think that's just an Australian problem, um, but very much so here. So I would use the term cultural maturity in the way that we develop innovation. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult to shift mindsets that have a very traditional way of thinking and bring them together with innovators. But I think one of the things that certainly the pandemic has, has, has demonstrated is that we're on a vertical learning curve in terms of the way that digital technology is built. And I think tied up in that is a concept of mastery of skill. Now, mastery of skill is not about mastering the understanding of how technologies work. What it is is about understanding how they can be applied and what they have the potential to do. Mm -hmm. So one of the mind shifts that needs to occur is, is a stepping back by the traditional world of their inability to understand all the different types of frontier technologies but are stepping up to the plate in the understanding that they need to go out to those who do have that understanding and the futurists and the design thinkers that are out there that have the ability to sort of see things from a big picture and connect the dots together. So in terms of cultural maturity, that does require, again, and I'm going to go back to that open discussion and open discourse, where in all, in essence, sort of nothing is off the table. You need to be able to discuss the good, the bad and the ugly to be able to get to a good, robust decision about technologies. Um, and that's not, a bad, that's not a bad thing. It's a good and positive thing. But it needs to be had in a respectful way so that you can understand all the different potentials of where you're coming from. And if we're talking about blockchain, for example, 
many people don't understand how the technologies work. What they do need to understand is that it's the building block of trust. So understanding what does trust mean? What does trust mean when you've crossed the line of you no longer trust someone as opposed to I do trust someone? That's a very very high-level conversation and these are the sorts of conversations that we need to be having around technology. They're not technical conversations. They're about philosophical conversations about what their potentials are. Do you think instances like the 2016 census data management issues have provided opportunities for the tech innovation space to learn in terms of those honest discussions that you're talking about in managing risk? And do you think that the Australian public's appetite for that kind of risk is lower after that census incident? Or is this something that is just part of entertaining new tech solutions as we move forward? Census is an interesting as an interesting area of work because census data is retrospective data. So we're making decisions for the future that is changing very fast. And in fact, you know, statistically, we know, for example, in the last year alone, we've had an acceleration of change of greater than seven years just in the last year alone. So if we're using statistical data that is retrospective, often five to 10 years in the past, and we're using that data to be making decisions about the future, then we've got an innate problem to start with. And that means that the way we think about capturing that data needs to be to be very different. We need to be looking at um, the way that we can use technologies to capture live exogenous data at source and in a trusted way. So, of course, that means if we truly want to get people to tell us the information that we need to make government decisions, set strategic policy, understand what they want in the future, we need to be able to create a situation of trust between the person we're gathering the data from and who's going to utilise that. And, of course, that does involve frontier technologies. That's not a discussion that politicians need to have. It's a discussion that technologists and politicians need to be having and decision makers need to be having. So we need to to be looking at the way that um, all of our data and we need to be collecting, for example, and understanding things like thick data. Thick data is how um, people emotionally are responding to the questions and the data that they're being asked to 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 deliver and receive and 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 we receive. So I think this conversation it's almost like we are trying to use a tool that was developed fifty years ago to make decisions fifty years in advance. And there's there's a problem, you know. It, it, it's it's not it's not aligned um, because we're moving too fast. We need to be using things that are very different. So, for example, I can un- I would I would imagine that none of the discussions with regards to cryptocurrency and decentralized autonomous organisations would be included in in the census. And yet, that is going to be the most profound thing that leads our our future in the next two to three years. It sounds like there's so many opportunities for radical innovation in tech ecosystems. And a real takeaway for me from this discussion has been about removing blockers and bringing in enablers. And I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your experience with governance structures that can include IP licensing arrangements that are set up so that they're contingent on an on organisations keeping their compliance up to scratch as per the vendor's ethical standards because I see that as one of these key enabling factors. Yes, intellectual property is the core element of what forms innovation. So if you have an, an idea or a concept 
um, that ideation is your intellectual property. How we uh, capture that and we record that and we can commercialise that, again, hasn't moved forward for probably, I would say, a good 50 to 100 years either. So the way currently, for example, intellectual property is is uh, recorded, you know, you do it through an intellectual properties office. Um, it's very traditional, for example, to apply for a patent. It might take six or seven years to get a patent, which for, for technology innovation is is next to useless because six to seven years innovation has changed so much and technology has changed so much it doesn't make um, any value. Mm. So we need to be able to find different ways to, first of all, anchor and record our intellectual property at source so it can be protected but also so it can be commercialised. The challenge that we have is that if we commercialise intellectual property in a different way and that intellectual property has a different purpose, and, for example, one of the reasons that we can ensure that we register intellectual property is so that we can manage quality. It's not about tax minimisation. It's about so that we can manage quality. For example, if I own the intellectual property for an educational program and that educational program protects the safety of customers and workers. If I own that and I own that in a different way, e.g. that it is anchored to a blockchain when I've developed it, if that intellectual property is used in the wrong way, I have an immediate way of withholding that intellectual property and stopping any further harm. Now, that means the way we commercialise and the way that we utilise that intellectual property doesn't fit into the, to the same standard ways that we have of recording that and the way that we have, for example, of recording how we use that in terms of tax purposes and, and the Australian Taxation Office and, and so forth. They're, they're not aligned. It's almost like two different concurrent worlds. So unless we have and I'm going to go back to the national strategy, I'm going to go back to the national strategy unless we include those traditional regulatory authorities and organisations in our discussions around the way frontier technologies are changing the world and we include the way that different modalities and different ways of doing business and different ways of using intellectual property, for example, are going to completely challenge business models and economic models, we're stuck. So an enabler, and I'm going to come back to it again, an enabler is education about technologies and about what innovation actually means and how we can best support that moving forward. Thank you so much, Lisa. That was really interesting. As the vaccine rollout continues across the United States, the Biden administration faces a number of pressing domestic challenges, which also require its attention. Anastasia Capetta speaks to Haley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre. They discuss the relationship between US domestic politics and foreign policy and how the Biden administration can rebuild trust with its allies in the Indo-Pacific. Hayley Channel, welcome to the Aspie Pod. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I love to be back in, in Aspie's halls. That's right, because you used to work here. So yeah, we're very happy to welcome you back today. What we're going to be talking about is um, really about the US. It's been an extraordinary uh, five years for the US. So much has changed domestically. And so the question that we're going to explore today is how those domestic trends will affect the US's security partnerships in the Asia Pacific. So Hayley, first of all, what do you think the domestic trends are that we should be looking at that will really affect the relationships in the region? Mm. Look, it's a great question and incredible topic to discuss because so much of what happens domestically in the US has far-reaching implications for Australia and other US allies in the region. 
Before Trump was even elected, there were changes afoot in US domestic politics and society. If you look at some of the trends that were happening in terms of race relations, issues around wages, uh, job security, and a lot of manufacturing jobs going overseas, and even a sort of culture, a counterculture, I would call it, about uh, rejecting the establishment, rejecting typical politicians, and people not feeling as though their government was really representative of who they were. So I think even before Trump came into power, these trends were already happening, and then you know, Trump's election is basically a manifestation of those frustrations. And he had four years in power and those trends accelerated in a number of ways. And I would say very destructive ways. I had hoped that, you know, when you kind of air these types of problems within a society that you expose some of the the mistruths. But I really do fear that after four years, we're in a worse place because I think under Trump, there was a lot of discussion around what is real and what conspiracy theories were you know, relevant, um, the whole idea of fake news. And instead of debunking some of those uh, people, it's given a lot of airtime and sort of fanned the flames. So in that sense, there's been uh, a lot of really unhelpful trends that have happened in the US and that has had a major impact on where we are today. So... I think it's really interesting that you talk about the real epistemological confusion that the US has experienced. And that obviously leads to real confusion about what the US stands for abroad. Is is that your reading? Definitely. It's a shame that we've had to go through this four-year period, but I'm so grateful that we have another safe pair of hands back in the White House in President Joe Biden and his team with Kamala Harris and people like Kurt Campbell heading up the Indo-Pacific strategy for the president. We had a joint Perth-US-Asia Centre-US Study Centre publication called State of the United States. And that publication, uh, which I've got a chapter in, uh, actually on an infrastructure topic, that chapter, uh, that book also looks at trends, domestic trends in the US and just how um, divided the country is in terms of, you know, Republican and Democrats and also on other issues around trade and China. And some of the stats there are really horrifying. Not only is the country more partisan than it ever has been, there's even negative sentiment around the other side of politics. So instead of just having people that are in your camp who you agree with, you also there's a distrust and a dislike of the other side that's creating a lot of discord within mm-hmm. communities around America. And so I think with having President Joe Biden in the White House, it is going to be a big challenge for him to try and get the country to not focus on what's happening so much internally, but to also reprioritize US's foreign affairs with the region and US foreign policy because when there's a fire in your house, you're much less likely to notice the fire outside your window. Yes. Look, and of course, Trump's America First policy was wildly unpopular outside um, the US's shores. So I just wonder with all of that, what do you think that Biden needs to do in the next two years to really restore some of that trust? And is some of that trust based on a lot? There's been a lot of commentary that the Republican Party in particular has been moving away from a commitment to democracy. And of course, that's been such a huge part of American identity in the world since the Second World War. So what does Biden, do you think, need to do in Asia to reassure partners? 
Well, he and his team have come out swinging in terms of doing exactly that. Um, you look at um, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, and you know, recently they wrote a paper that said that US allies were in the military term, force multipliers. So the messaging is strong and obviously Blinken and Austin are visiting the region this week, going to Japan and South Korea. And I think trips to Australia and India will also be hugely welcome and very reassuring. So obviously the Biden White House knows it has a major challenge in front of it and it is meeting that challenge through demonstrated commitment to the region through those visits. I think another way the Biden White House could improve confidence among allies is a deeper discussion around joining the CPTPP because um, a few years ago when I was at ASPE, I spent some time in Washington, D.C., so this is back in, I think it was 2014, and when I spoke to U.S. counterparts there, they told me that what U.S. allies in Asia could do to help the United States was to join the TPP. Mm-hmm. And now we find ourselves, you know, a few years later and the situation is reversed. <laughs> so you have Australia and Japan leading the, you know, reinvigorated CPTPP. And Biden will have a huge challenge on his hands to convince not just the Republicans and the public, but even his own Democratic Party, that there is benefit for the US in joining that trade partnership. So that is definitely one major way that that the United States could reassure us. Can I also ask about Biden's very strong climate change uh, agenda, which he released an executive order very early on in his term, basically saying we want climate change front and centre of our security and foreign policy. Is that a vehicle in which to show leadership in Asia? Yes and no. Climate change is a difficult one because countries in Asia and indeed the world are all experiencing climate change differently and countries at different stages of development also have different views on how climate change should be tackled and I can completely understand that perspective. I'm not sure if climate change is an area that the US can show its leadership A lot of people would say, yes, it can, and it is by doing that. But I would say Asia is potentially not the right region to use that as a a key leverage point. I was really pleased to see that the Quad Leaders meeting mentioned climate change and how all four countries were dedicated to responding to climate change. But I would steer away from it as being a way to show US leadership. Also, just on uh, sort of kind of non-traditional security issues, another uh, issue that's kind of... uh, really, really active in the region is that of um, disinformation. Um, And, of course, one of the major vehicles of disinformation are really big American platforms. Um, That's also something that the Biden administration is trying to grapple with. Congress is is trying to figure out how to restrain, uh, how how to get disinformation off these platforms. Is is that something um, that the region is watching for US leadership on? That would be fantastic. I mean, it would also be re, like course correcting the United States from what has happened the last four years because you at that time had a president that was fanning the flames of misinformation. And if you turned the corner and had the US show leadership in terms of making sure that content on news sites and in Facebook and other areas was accurate and was contested so that you know people really did know what is truth, what's fact and what's fiction – that would go a huge way towards restructuring US leadership in the region. 
Oh, that's interesting. We haven't discussed the pandemic yet and Biden's pandemic response. And of course, under Trump, the pandemic response was just not not only not there, uh, but also harmful, you know, doing active harm, thinking of some of Trump's comments around injecting bleach and et cetera, famously, and also complete non-response federally. So the US has gone from being so behind the world response um, to making up a lot of ground very quickly. If Biden does a good job on the pandemic, does he get to at least draw kind of even with China on you know pandemic diplomacy in the region? I think yes, definitely. And again, that was another outcome of the Quad that they're going. The United States is going to work with um, India, Australia, and Japan to try and vaccinate the region, because I think Southeast Asian countries don't want to have to rely on China to, to provide them with a vaccine. And so much can be done by showing the region and the, the wider world that democracies are able to have the cutting edge science and technology research and development to produce these life-saving vaccines. And that is a key way that they could be showing leadership in the region and a key way to show that partnerships um, that are like the Quad or other sort of minilateral arrangements can be very effective mechanisms to create a more secure environment, whether that's in the health area, and then, th- then they can extend that to other areas as well, like economics. So finally, Hayley, uh, if there's one thing the Asian uh, region is really hungry for, it is infrastructure, infrastructure investment. Now, of course, you know China's been an early mover on this with its Belt and Road Initiative that's now probably about a decade old, a bit more. What can the US do uh, to deal itself back into that game? Mm. Well, that's a fabulous question and a really important one because often people see infrastructure as being a really boring subject. But actually, whoever, which country or countries provide uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific's underpinning infrastructure will have incredible influence for literally decades. I mean, it's not only about showing leadership um, and influence, it's also about who is going to um, have an influence over the rules of the road and how um, development happens in the region. So it is really important. Previously, the United States has worked with Australia and Japan on the Trilateral Infrastructure Partnership, and that was announced a couple of years ago with the first project being a $20 million undersea fibre optic cable, which is going to connect Palau with another undersea cable, which connects Southeast Asia with mainland USA. However, US-Australia-Japan trilateral efforts in this space have really been hamstrung by the fact that they haven't been able to get the private sector on board. And when they have public-private partnerships in the infrastructure space, they can really uh, maximise their influence in the region and their impact. So I think what the United States needs to do is work uh, more cleverly with its private sector and also with Australian and Japanese private sectors so that we can start to generate a bit more activity in the trilateral partnership because China's Belt and Road Initiative is not necessarily the best um, mechanism for countries in the region to improve their development given the fact that a lot of projects can be lack transparency, are open to corruption and also place countries in a very difficult position if they are default on their loans and you know, become beholden to Chinese mm-hmm. national interests. So definitely the US needs to work more closely with Australia and Japan on that and I, I hope to see that in future. Great. Well, we might leave it there. Thank you so much um, for coming in and taking us for a tour around the region in terms of what Biden needs to do and build back the US into the Pacific. My absolute pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. 
We'll be back with another episode next week.